0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McLarty. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Admittedly, some of the phraseology in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 is difficult phraseology, so much so, in fact, so cryptic is it, that I've read numerous different commentaries when I've looked at some of these phrases and thought, now, what is the proper understanding? What's being said here? And across the board... None of the commentaries agreed with each other. They all had different understandings of what was being said. And in fact, some of the verses in Ecclesiastes 4 are interpreted wildly different as you go from version to version. As you go from the King James to the NIV to the ESV to the NASB to the the language, the verbiage is, is very different. And it's because some of this ancient Hebrew can be interpreted a variety of ways, and the interpreters were trying to make the best sense that they could out of the letters that were in front of them to work with. So what I came down to was which of these understandings follows the context the best, because I'm a context freak. I understand most biblical things based on context does this fit into the overall argument and so that's the conclusion that I've come to on a couple of these more cryptic phrases and I'll tell you what they are when we get to them and we will let some of you who have other versions read those same verses and you're going to see that there is a a variance of understanding So what is chapter 4 about? Well, we last week saw that Solomon has said that human endeavors, human activity, human work is all just striding against the wind. And the only value that it really has is if you recognize God's sovereignty behind it, recognize it as your lot in life, and then enjoy it for what it is. That's the only place that you can find value in the work that you're given to do here in this lifetime. Because nobody's going to remember, says Solomon, no one's going to remember that you were here. No one's going to remember most of what you ever did. And the riches that you gain to yourself are going to be somebody else's when you die. And you don't know if they're going to use that wisely or if they're just going to be a fool. So the most you can do is recognize the value of what God has given you here and now, recognize that you are sort of a steward of the things that God has given you, enjoy those things and enjoy your work, enjoy the tasks of life that you have, and that's really the only value they have. Chapter 4, he begins in an almost proverbial way to start spelling out other inspirations for why men toil, why men work, why men do the things that they do. And they're all bad reasons. They're all reasons based in greed. And in the end of it, he's going to say yet again that it's only those things that are accounted (coughs) as God's work. It's only those things that are recognized as a gift from the sovereign. It's really only those things that have any value. You can spend your whole life working like crazy. In fact, at one point, he's going to talk about fame and say you can become very well known and very rich and very powerful. And then people are going to turn on you, and the people who loved you aren't going to love you anymore. People who thought you were the greatest thing since sliced bread are going to want to see you fall. And that's still true of human beings to this day, if you just watch the way that the modern press works. They love to create a hero, and then once they've created that hero, they love to tear him back down. So this is one of the things that he's going to mention as as a fallacious reason, as a bad reason to work, to achieve, to gain riches, to gain fame. And in the process of anybody doing well, there's also going to be, according to his observance of everything under the sun, there's also going to be people who never get a fair shake because they're always going to be oppressed by the people who have more. Hmm. And once he recognized that oppression, once he sees the way the oppression works, he said it would really be better for a man not to be born than to have to experience that kind of oppression. So that's really where chapter 4 starts. It starts with, I looked at everything. I looked again at everything under the sun. And I saw all these people who were under oppression. They had no way up. They had no help. They had no one they could go to. And he said, and this is evil, and yet it's a reality. It's what's here under the sun. You're going to keep hearing this phrase, the things that are under the sun. Last week I said it was an inclusio that he was creating, like bookends, that he was saying everything under the sun, which means everything here on planet Earth, everything that's natural life right here, the things that aren't heavenly, the things that aren't righteous or holy, the stuff that goes on on planet Earth is everything that happens Under the sun. And as he looks at the things that happen on the earth under the sun, he sees that there's just wickedness everywhere, and there's futility everywhere, there's vanity everywhere, and that's all the evidence that he's building up to say, so it is really all emptiness, vanity, and so the only thing that matters, the only thing that counts are those things that we do for God's glory and the knowledge of God as he gives us our lot in life. So chapter 4 begins, Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors, there was power. But they had no one to comfort them. So on one side of the equation, there's the people who are doing the oppressing. They're able to oppress the lessers because they have the power to do it. They have the ability to do it. But the ones who were being oppressed have no power at all. They have no one they can cry to. They have no one they can call to. No one is going to comfort them. He sees that inequity in human life, which we still see to this very day. And he says, this is another evil under the sun. But it is also part of his overall view of building, of doing, of creating, of gaining wealth. One of the ways that that's accomplished is through oppressing people. And that's the wrong way to do it. So, verse two, he says, So I congratulated the dead. Once I saw how bad it was here on the planet, I was just proud of the people who made it all the way to death. So I congratulated the dead who were already dead, and I congratulated them more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them, the living and the dead, is the one who never existed who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. Mm. It would be better just not to know, is Solomon's final conclusion. It'd be better to just never have lived. But I congratulate the ones who did live, who have successfully navigated this life and made it all the way to successfully dead. They're better off than the people who are living because life down here is just a mess. Verse 4 then, And I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor, and this too is vanity and striving after wind. In other words, he's saying men do what they do. They accomplish what they accomplished. Think about this under the heading of the people with power and the people who are oppressed. The people who accomplish things labor and they have all this great skill, but they do it in such a way that they lord it over other people so that it becomes a form of rivalry. I'm doing better than you're doing and I'm keeping you down as I make myself more successful. Mm. And he says, this too is an evil activity under the sun. And I have seen that every labor. And every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This, too, is vanity and striving after wind. And the fool folds his hands, and the NASB says, and consumes his own flesh. Okay, that's one of those really cryptic phrases I was talking about. Anybody got a King James in the room? Anybody got an ESV in the room? It's the same thing, eats his own flesh. Eats his own flesh. Is that also what you've got in the King James? Mine says, the fool folds his hands and ruins himself. And ruins himself, which is actually a better translation. Because that's what the phrase in the Hebrew is really getting at. That the fool folds his hands. In other words, he's lethargic. He doesn't get up and do stuff. He doesn't get up and get busy. And in so doing, he ruins himself. It's like, it's like destroying his own flesh. He's not accomplishing anything. So in this rivalry between a man and his neighbor, one side of the rivalry is the man who's getting up every day and doing stuff, but he's doing it so that he can oppress his neighbor and so that he can say, I'm doing better than you're doing, so that he can keep that one down by building himself up. That's one side of the rivalry. But the other side of the rivalry is the one who just says, well, I guess I'm going to be like this my whole life, he sits back, folds his hands, and becomes completely lethargic and does nothing to his own ruin. So both sides of that equation are foolishness. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. So knowing the two sides of the rivalry, verse 6, Solomon's conclusion is, one handful of rest is better than two fistful. Of labor and striving after the wind. Okay, mathematically that doesn't work. One handful of something is better than two handfuls of something. But he says one handful of rest, being content. Remember last week we talked a lot about contentment, how difficult it is for human beings to reach the point of actually being content, coming to the realization that this is your lot in life because this is what a sovereign God has given you in life, and so you're. You're able to just enjoy your life as it is. He says just one handful of that is better than two fistfuls of labor and striving after the wind. Because he's already said there's a lot of labor that goes on among men that accomplishes nothing. There's a lot of labor. People get very busy, whether it's to oppress people, whether it's to show off, whether it's to achieve certain things in their own greed. That accomplishes nothing, That striving against the wind, but just a handful of contentment is better than all that. So then I looked again at vanity under the sun. Now he's going to tell us a little parable. There was a certain man without a dependent, in other words he had no children, having neither a son nor a brother, Yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches. And he never asked, and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity. And it is a grievous task. So the story he's telling is of a man who's determined to work hard, to achieve riches, it says here, and yet he's never content with his riches. But he never asked himself, since he doesn't have an heir, he doesn't have a brother, he doesn't have a son, he doesn't have anybody who's going to benefit from his hard work, he never stopped long enough to ask himself, why am I working so hard? Why am I not just enjoying the contentment of life? Why am I not just resting in what God has given me? So then what would be this man's motivation for working that hard? Greed. He wants more. He wants more. He's never content with riches. No matter how much he accomplishes, he wants more and he wants more. And then he labors his whole life. He deprives himself of pleasure. He never rests. He's never satisfied. And then he dies. And what did he accomplish? Nothing. What's he really got? He's got Nothing. He didn't leave it to an heir, he didn't leave it to a brother, he didn't leave it to a child, and so he accomplished all that and left it to a stranger who may even end up to be a fool. So he did nothing of any value, which is why Solomon would say, this is vanity, and it's a grievous task. In other words, that task of working your whole life, slaving your whole life so that it will just blow away to the wind in the end, so that's, that's grievous. Verse 9, this is why I said he speaks sort of proverbially, he skips sort of subject to subject, but they're all under the big heading of being content with what you have. Verse 9 says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. In other words, if you've got two that are laboring, then one or the other at least is going to be able to inherit that. One or the other is going to benefit from that. But the man who was all by himself labored his whole life and accomplished nothing. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the other one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not any other to lift him up. I think he's still talking about that man by himself, the greedy man who worked his whole life, and then he ultimately dies. And when he ultimately falls and dies, there's no one there to help him. And everything he accomplished ends up being nothing. So two is, in fact, better than one because they can take care of each other. Furthermore, verse 11, if two lie down together, they keep warm. That's just body heat. And how can one be warm all alone. Verse 12. If one overpowers someone who's alone, well, two could resist him. In other words, if they're walking down the street or walking through a forest or they're out and about and they're falling on by robbers, if it's just one, he's going to be overcome by the robbers. But if there's two, they can fight back. If one is overpowered, he's alone, but two can resist him. And a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. That's a truism. Rope is usually made of three strands so that it's strong rope. But I've also, in the midst of reading different commentaries yesterday, I came across an interpretation of that that took me all the way back to my Lutheran days, I had all but forgotten a sermon that I heard when I was just a young kid, I mean like 11, 12. The commentary said that if you were going to allegorize that verse, then the two that he's talking about are two men who are friends, two men who keep each other warm, two men who work together, two men who are close to each other, but if they're truly going to be really genuinely close bonded friends it takes that third strand and that third strand is God that's the allegorization of that verse that if you have two friends that are just friends one could turn on the other but if you have two friends who were brought together by that strong cord of faith in God that combination of the three makes them unbreakable I was like 11 when I heard that and here I am at age, <laughs> saying it again. <laughs> now a new story, starting at verse thirteen. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king. So there's the first contrast: poor lad who's young is better than an old but foolish king if he's a king he's got everything he's very wealthy the kid's very poor but the poor boy is wise and the king is a fool so wisdom is better than foolishness regardless of the other circumstances but then he's going to extrapolate on this and he's going to make it about fame he's going to make it about notoriety and how quickly people will turn on you a poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. That would be a sign of his foolishness. He no longer listens. He no longer pays attention to good counsel. He does everything his own way, but he's a fool. Verse 14 for he has come out of prison to become king. Now, commentary after commentary, you can go look. We'll say, how many people are we talking about here? Okay, there's a kid, there's a king. Now there's this other guy who's come up from prison who's, I think, what Solomon is doing is starting yet another thought in a very proverbial way. But as long as he's thinking about kings, he creates this scenario where there's a guy who came out of prison, that's how poor he was, And then he ultimately becomes king. So even though he was born poor in the kingdom, he ended up becoming king. And the people were for him. The people were completely for this poor guy who made his way up from nothing, pulled himself up by his bootstraps and became king. Verse 15 says that, and I have seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. Okay, now again, commentaries will go, wait, that's a fourth person. How many people are we talking about here? Essentially, I think Solomon is simply saying, what if there was a poor guy in prison who worked his way all the way up to actually becoming the most important man in the country? He became the king. And when he became king, there were throngs of people who were so excited about the fact that this young former prisoner had now overtaken the king. I think that's what makes him the second lad who replaced him. The him is the king, I think. But then look at verse 16. And there is no end to all the people, to all who were before them. And even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him. For this, too, is vanity and striving after wind. So at one time, people can go, yeah, you're the best thing since sliced bread. You should be our democratic nominee. I'm sorry, I was just trying to make it current. (laughs) People get all excited. Yay, you're the one. You're going to change everything. You're going to make it great. You should be the king. Throngs of people following him and then people will turn on you the same way that there were crowds of people in Jerusalem throwing their cloaks and palm branches in the street and singing Hosanna to the son of David and within a week they were yelling crucify him so Solomon knows what he's talking about he is the king and he knows what it is to have the kingdom taken away from him he knows what it is especially when Rehoboam starts saying, you think the taxes you paid before were burdensome. Just wait until you see the taxes that are coming. Well, that means that Solomon had to have been taxing the people pretty heavily, which means people were probably not real happy with him. So he knows what it is to gain superiority, to have the power, to have the authority, to become the king. And then once you're the king, have the people turn on you. And that's what he's described here. So here's the whole story. For he has come out of prison to become a king, even though he was born poor in the kingdom. And I have seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of that second lad who replaces the foolish king. And there is no end to all the people, he's got a huge kingdom. And to all those who were before them, and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him. Which means the ones who go before him, and the ones who come later, all of them as a group, the great throng end up turning on this king. And that too is vanity, and striving after the wind. So what I've gotten out of chapter 4 so far is, there are bad reasons... For striving under the sun, for doing all your work, for uh, achieving for your own greedy purposes. And it's no good to achieve absolutely everything in the world if you're going to be a foolish king. It's better to have wisdom and be poor than to gain all the riches and still not know anything. And fame itself is fleeting. Because you can be really, really popular today, and the people will really love you, and they'll turn on you tomorrow. And you can think right now. Here we go. Let me see. Let's, uh, ah, I got one. MC Hammer. OK, there's somebody who was like really famous for a week. <laughs> Remember when everybody was like, don't touch that? You know? And oh, MC Hammer. <laughs> Parachute pants. Whoa, that's cool. For about a week. And then he have you read the stories? And he had to sell his mansion, and he had all these tax problems. You know. Where is he now? Do you ever see him? Do you ever think of him? Do you ever get up in the morning and think, I wonder what M.C. Hammer's doing? No, why don't you think that? he's not famous anymore. Everybody turned on him. Fame is fleeting. He just was a good example of that. So striving to get famous, striving To get rich just so that you can oppress the poor and show yourself how great you are is just striving after the wind, which takes us to chapter five. Again, a new idea, but still under that big heading. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer The sacrifice of fools. Now, I believe the sacrifice of fools is a reference to making hasty vows before God. If you go into the temple and you make a vow, which was very common in the Old Testament, and Paul even made a vow in Jerusalem, shaved his head, (coughs) killed an animal, made vows before God. So this was a very standard part of Jewish religion that they would go and make vows to God. And as Solomon continues talking here, he's going to say, don't make vows and then not pay it. And don't go to the priest and say, whoops, mistake. I didn't mean to do that. Uh Uh-oh. No, he's saying, when you make a vow to God, actually pay it. So I think that's what he's talking about when he says, guard your steps when you go into the house of God, which means be careful. Hmm. Don't just barge into the house of God like you don't have a care in the world. I tell people, prepare yourself. When you get up in the morning and you know you're going to church, prepare your mind, prepare your heart. Spend a little time in prayer. Think about what it is you're going to do. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. And draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. It's very much like the statement in the New Testament, faith comes by Talking, if you just talk incessantly, that's where faith comes from. No, it's not. no, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So it's important that when you go to the house of God, when you go to any place where people are discussing the scripture, pay attention. Rather than making the sacrifice of fools. For they, the ones who do that, they don't know that they're doing evil now he's going to describe what that evil is they make a vow to God and then they don't pay it and that's evil verse 2 do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God very interesting phrase don't be quick with your words think about what you're saying And don't be hasty with thought means don't blurt out every stupid thing that comes into your head. Just because you thought it doesn't mean the rest of us need to hear it. And certainly God doesn't need to hear it. You're to be quiet, to give some thought to what you're doing. And don't bring up every matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. So when you go to the house of God, you have to think in heavenly terms. You have to think about, is this an appropriate thing for me to be saying or doing before God who's in heaven? Considering that God is righteous and holy, does he really want to hear your dumbness? Every fleeting thought that goes through your silly sinful brain. In other words, be wise, be careful, don't be talkative about it. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Don't be mouthing off in front of God. Who absolutely knows absolutely every absolutely thing. So what are you possibly going to tell him? Make sure that your words are words of grace. Words of faith, words of praise, words of honor toward him, words that glorify and worship him. Make sure that you're thinking about what you're saying. And the best example of not thinking about what you're saying is to hastily make a vow and then later say, oh, that was a mistake. I meant to do that, but I I blew it. Sorry. Verse 3 says... And this is another one of those cryptic phrases. It took me a minute to figure it out. For the dream comes through much effort, and the voice of a fool through many words. What this is, really, is a comparison of two things. Saying the same way this is this, well, then that is also this. The dream comes, in other words, sleeplessness comes when you're filled up with effort. If you've had a really busy day and you're busy with your thoughts and you can't stop your head, and you gotta, that's when you can't sleep well and that's what he's talking about and that's when the dreams come through much effort. In the same way you can tell a fool by how much he talks, the same way that it's just a truism that you can't sleep with a busy mind and a busy head, the exact same way you can tell a fool if he talks too much. He's going to let it be known by his words. For a dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. So here it is in Ecclesiastes. Certainly we could turn to the book of James and we could read James saying, control your tongue. Be careful what you say. The tongue does a whole world of damage. So throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament There is the constant repetition of this idea. You need to just watch your tongue. You need to be careful about what you say. I operate on the assumption that when the Bible gives you imperatives, when the Bible says do stuff, it's because you don't naturally do them. Like you'll never find anywhere in the Bible where it says breathe regularly because you'll just do that. You don't have to be told you're going to do that. But you have to be told over and over and over again, watch your tongue. Why do you have to be told over and over and over again? Because you'll forget and you'll mouth off and you'll talk again. And a great deal of damage can be done by the things that you say without thinking. And he especially says within the house of God, don't bring that foolishness here. Verse 4. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. So that means it's foolish in God's eyes for you to make a promise to God, to make a vow to God, and then be late to do it. He takes no pleasure in fools, so pay what you vow. It is better, says verse 5, it's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Because if you just don't make the vow, then you're not obligated to the vow. And not paying the vow is no problem because you didn't make a vow. But if you make a promise to God, if you make a vow to God and you don't do it, Or you do it late, or you neglect it, or you claim it's a mistake, which he's going to get into in a moment. He says, well, that's foolishness. God doesn't like that. I can't begin to tell you, through the years, the number of people who have made promises even here to GCA. People who have walked in and said what they were going to do. You can count on me. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be there. I'm going to accomplish it. I think I told you one time that John Reesinger used a phrase that I I use frequently, where he said when people come to him and say, oh, Pastor Reesinger, that was wonderful. You can count on me. I'm with you no matter what. Even if everybody leaves you, I'm with you. I am so into what you're doing. And the phrase he always uses is, well, time and the devil will tell because that's true people make vows all the time and when they do these days I say to them think about what you're saying don't say it if you're not going to do it because you're not promising me you're not promising Tom you're promising God that you're going to do this thing and if you make that promise to God by golly do it and don't be late with doing it because that's foolishness and a rebellion against God it's better for you to not vow than that you should vow and then not pay it and do not let your speech cause you to sin and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake in other words you don't say to the priest you don't go into the temple and say you know that vow that I made I didn't realize I wasn't going to have the money Uh, That was a mistake when I made that vow. I know I made a promise. You don't go into, the the word there is actually the messenger, the angel of God, the the representative of God in the body. You don't go in there and make a promise and then say, never mind. (laughs) What was I thinking? I thought I was going to do it. I was pretty sure I was going to do it, but nope, just couldn't do it. He says, if you do that, then you're letting your speech cause you to sin, it's not just a mistake, it's an affront, it's an offense to God. Do not let your speech cause you to sin and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. That verse 7 is part of where I got the interpretation of verse 3. He again equates dreams, which is staying awake, not being able to sleep, being awake all night, and many words. And he says both of them, that inability to truly rest and that inability to shut up, are both just foolishness. Verse 8. If you see the oppression of the poor... See, that's why I said it's all one subject. He's back to the oppression of the poor, which is where chapter 4 began. This is still in his mind. This is still the overarching subject of all of this. If you see the oppression of the poor and the denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight one official watches over another official and there are higher officials that are over them in other words what he's saying is the one who's doing the oppressing has somebody over him that oppresses him and the one that's doing that oppressing of the secondary oppressor also has an oppressor over him all the way up to the king who's oppressing everybody so everybody's got pressure on them everybody's being oppressed in some way so why would you be surprised when you see the oppression happening. But then Solomon says something really clever. Now again, verse 9 is one of those places where different translations will have different ways that they render these words. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. What does the ESV say? But this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields. Okay, it's very different than what I just read from the NASB. Anybody got a King James or a new King James? Moreover, the prophet of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. So overall, the field is for everyone, and the king is also served from the field. So all three of those translations are slightly different, but I think in context of everything else that we've read and what he's <laughs> saying here, the idea is that the king, who is the ultimate oppressor, who oppresses levels of people down to the worker in the field, who can't do anything about the oppression that's on him, he cries out and no one's there to help him. And yet the king, for all his oppressive work, nevertheless is reliant on the person who's working in the field. Because the king, too, has to eat. Hmm. And so the field has to produce in order for the king to eat, so the king is actually reliant on the very ones that he's responsible for oppressing. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. There, is that true? Some of the most greedy people I've ever met were the richest people I've ever met. Mm -hmm. And I've met some pretty rich people. I used to hang out with rock stars and actors. And they were really well-to-do, really well. And all they worried about all day was whether somebody was going to take their money, how they were going to lose their riches, what would happen if they weren't famous anymore. He who loves money will never be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance, he's never going to be satisfied with his income. And this too is vanity. That's a reality that exists to this very day. If you love having a lot, if you love abundance, if you love having a, over much of everything, then you're never going to be satisfied with what's coming in. You're always going to think more has to come in. I need more stuff. I need bigger cars and larger houses and more stuff. You remember the phrase, uh, he who dies with the most toys wins? Did you ever see that bumper sticker? I remember when I lived out in California, that was a poster and a bumper sticker and And people actually thought that was true. He who dies with the most toys wins. No, he doesn't. He spends his whole life trying to accumulate toys, and then he dies. He accomplishes nothing, really. It's all vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? In other words, if you increase your stuff, the people who want to consume your stuff also increases. Remember the Billy Holiday song? Sure you do. Of course you do. Them that's got shall get, them that's not shall lose. So the Bible says, and it still is news. God bless the child. That's the name of the song. The bridge of that song says, and when you got money, you got lots of friends all crowding around your door, and when the money's gone. And all your spending ends, they don't come round anymore. That's a fact. It's a fact that Solomon is getting at. When you increase what you got, there's going to be plenty of people coming around to consume what you got. And then the owner of everything can't do anything but just stand back and look. Stand back and watch as people consume everything you had. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owner except to look on? The sleep of the working man, the man who just gets up every day, does his work, isn't being greedy. To him, his sleep is, pre- is pleasant. And that's in contrast to the people who are up all night with the dreams, the restlessness. People who are just working people, who are satisfied with their work, they sleep well. And he sleeps well, and his sleep is pleasant, whether he eats a little or whether he eats a lot. But the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. I can't eat late at night. Keeps me up. He says here, the person who is feasting all the time, spends his time in stuffing his belly, he's never going to have a good night's sleep. But the man who works, who is satisfied with his work, satisfied with his lot in life, whether he eats a lot or a little, his sleep is going to be pleasant. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his own hurt, somebody who just keeps bringing it in, keeps bringing it in and To the point where they just disappear into their stuff, where their stuff defines them, where the only reason anybody wants to know them or know anything about them is because of their stuff, not because of them. They hoard things to themselves, to their own hurt. And when those riches are lost through a bad investment and he hasn't fathered a son, then there's nothing to support him. Because all those friends who are around for the stuff, when the stuff is gone, there's nobody there for you. And you already talked about the man who dies alone. How two is better than one. Three is an unbreakable cord. But if you're gathering people to yourself based on the stuff you've amassed, when the stuff is gone, so are the people. And then who's going to help you? Nobody. There's no one there to support you. As he had come naked from his mother's womb. So he will return as he came. And he will take nothing from the fruits of all his labor. That he can carry in his hand. And this is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born. Thus will he die. So what is the advantage to him. Who toils for the wind. Throughout his life. He also eats in darkness with great vexation and sickness and anger. So here is what I have seen to be good and to be fitting. To eat, to drink, and to enjoy oneself in all the labors in which he toils under the sun during the few years of life which God has given him. For this is his reward. His reward is to do the work that God has given him. To eat, to drink, to enjoy oneself in the labors and the toils that you have during your few years here on the earth. That's the reward. The reward isn't in gathering more stuff and having more than your neighbor and oppressing the poor and in your greed. That's not where the pleasure comes from. That's not where the good sleep comes from. The ability... To rest well, the ability to be satisfied, the ability to be content in this world is to recognize that God has given you this lot in life, this work to do, and then enjoy that work. Whatever food he's given you, enjoy that food. Say thanks and eat it and enjoy it. Drink what he has set in front of you and be satisfied with it. And if that's your lot in life, then that's your lot in life, and you can go through the rest of your life arguing and fighting and beating your head against the wall, the brick wall of God's absolute sovereignty, saying, it's not fair, and my life didn't work out, and I don't like the way it's going, and why would God do it like this? And you know what you'll change? Nothing. You're still going to get up tomorrow in the same circumstance you were in while you were moaning and complaining. (coughs) So it's better to accept your lot in life and enjoy what God has put in front of you. Here, I can give you an example. My kids, when they were little, uh, they got a lot of stuff for Christmas. We used to go overboard for Christmas. And what I discovered real quickly was they would rip open a gift and they'd be all excited about it, you know. So, GI Joe with the kung fu grip. They were just, they were so thrilled, you know. Oh, that's what I always want. And then within two minutes, they were like, "What else you got?" Amen. Well, here's, here's another thing. Here you go. Here's another. And they'd unwrap that, and they'd throw the paper on, they would take all the ribbons off, and they would go, "I always wanted one of these. This is great." What else you got? And by the time they got to the fortieth gift. I don't think they ever got 40, but I'm going to pick that number. By the time they got to the 15th gift, that first thing they were so excited about opening, they don't even remember it. They don't even play with it. It's in a heap over there with the wrapping paper. Because people are never, never satisfied with what they've got. They never appreciate what's right in front of them. And today, right now, you ate you're dressed you're in your right mind you're here maybe Maybe. I knew someone was going to say that and I was counting on you (laughs) you're sitting here in the house of God listening to the word of God and you're surrounded by friends there's nobody here who wants to hurt or harm anybody this is a safe place to come it's a good place to be And so there's all of these blessings in front of you. You're going to go home, and you're going to flip on a light switch, and the lights are going to come on, and you're not even going to pay attention to that. Instead of being thankful for the fact that you've got electricity, and you've got lights that work, and the light bill is paid, and everything's okay, that you can fire up the gas stove and cook something. When was the last time you said, thank you, God, for the gas in the stove? It's working. I'm so tired of my bed. Thank you that I've got a bed. You get what I'm saying? Yes. You have so many things in your life that work. So many things that are good. So many things that are valuable. Every one of you are wearing clothes that are clean. <laughs> Nobody came in here covered in mud. You're all wearing shoes or sandals or something on your feet. There are just so many good things happening in your life right here, right now that you really have no business complaining about what you don't have. And yet, that's our nature. Our nature is to be upset that I don't have more. I'm never satisfied. I want more. That's what Solomon said. I'm never going to reach the point where I'm satisfied with my riches and with my accumulation of stuff. I want more stuff rather than having a thankful heart for what you do have and recognizing that everything you do have is what God gave you and what God gave you ain't bad so furthermore as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor this is the gift from god everybody who has riches and wealth that's a gift from god so then if his wealth allows him to eat well then he should thank god because he received that and he rejoices in the things that he has received he rejoices in the labor that god has given him for he will not often consider the years of his life Because God keeps him occupied with his gladness of heart. That phrase means if you get up every day and you are happy and you are satisfied with what's going on in your life, then you're not going to worry about the years of your life. You're not going to worry about how many more days you have left or how many are behind you. Because your life is in a constant state of being grateful, being thankful, appreciating what you do have. And you're not worried about tomorrow, and you're not worried about yesterday. All you're worried about is that God, who has taken care of you, has taken care of you for another day. And you're dressed another day, and you ate another day, and you lived somewhere another day. Somebody loved you another day, and good things are happening to you another day. Well, then if you're satisfied with today, and then you're satisfied with tomorrow, you're satisfied with the day after that, then you're not worried about your days. All right, so let's read that whole thing now as one unit so that you get the sense of what Solomon is telling you. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting. To eat, to drink, and to enjoy oneself in all one's labors in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, For every man to whom God has given riches and wealth he has also empowered him to eat from those riches and wealth and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift from God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. I used to work with a woman who used to say happiness is a choice and the older I get and certainly the more I read Ecclesiastes the more I would say happiness gladness of heart is not so much a choice as it is a recognition that God's been really good to us Mm. and if you see that then the troubles of this life the trials of this life the problems of this life just can't size up to the goodness of God in this life and you don't really have to worry about anything if you know the sovereign God has got it he knows where you are he knows what you're going through and he knows he said he was going to clothe you and feed you and he promised you he would do that you're going to be okay how many of you here have ever gone through a circumstance that you heard yourself say this is going to kill me yeah this is going to kill me okay how many of you died None of you. You got through it. Why'd you get through it? Because God's faithful. If God can get you through the stuff that you thought was going to kill you, then he's going to continue to get you through whatever it is he's going to bring your way next time. So be content. Be satisfied with your life. Being unsatisfied isn't going to change anything. So learn to accept what you got. Watch your tongue. Don't make foolish promises. Don't make silly vows. If you do make a vow, then actually pay the vow. And don't oppress people. Don't oppress the poor. And recognize that even those who are the oppressors have oppressors over them. And ultimately, everybody's reliant on the most oppressed people. The people who work in the fields and make the food are the ones that everybody counts on. So there's this great balance to how God has created everything under the sun. So be satisfied. Be content. Got it? Mm -hmm. All right. Did you have your hand up or were you just scratching your face? So uh, I feel like more satisfied with the things that you have in life, you have like a better life? Or uh... Yeah, if you're satisfied with the things you have, you actually have a better life. If you're never satisfied, doctors will tell you, there's a whole lot of things that happen to you physiologically. Like you'll get ulcers because you're producing too much stomach acid because you're always worried about things you're always upset about things so you actually end up having a better life by being contented even Solomon said you sleep better and you need your sleep if you never get any sleep you're going to be constantly tired and crabby and none of us want to be around you while you're tired and crabby so yes it's true that if you're Content and satisfied in life, you will have a better life. It's just axiomatic. Yeah. Is that what you were asking? Okay. Anything else? All right. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.